You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. What does it mean to put our hope in a God we can't see? What does it mean to walk the walk of faith? This is our sermon series, Water and Blood, Finding Rest in Jesus, Our High Priest. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at a death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not only into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. But for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await, are waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we are thankful that the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, will never lose its power. We thank you that you lifted up your Son on the cross because you love the world, that you gave your only Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. And we thank you that because of Jesus' death, on the cross for our sins, and you're raising him up from the dead, we thank you that our sins have been atoned for once and for all. And Father, we come before you this morning on the basis of Jesus' shed blood, asking you to, to wash us in that blood this morning by the power of your Spirit. We pray that you would liberate us from guilt and the weight of sin by helping us to look to Christ who has conquered it and who reigns supremely over it. 
and remind us that because of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, we reign with God in Christ right now as we live in this world. So Lord, may your spirit come and help us to believe this as I preach to your people, your word open their hearts so that they would receive it. Help me to speak it with clarity and and protect me from saying or doing anything to make Jesus seem silly or weak. But may he seem strong through the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On April the 26th, or the 22nd, 1996, a few weeks after the tragic death of one of my high school friends who died at the tender age of 17, I repented of my sins and I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I too was only 17. A few weeks later, I was baptized. And one of the Christian songs I remember learning early in my walk with the Lord had these words. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This song, I think, clearly communicates the message of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Here, the author's basic point is Jesus and the new covenant are superior to the old covenant and the priesthood and the sacrificial system of the old covenant. Because Jesus' blood alone cleanses us from all our sins. This section continues the author's argument from chapter 7 through chapter 9, verse 14, that Jesus is a high priest in accordance with the order of Melchizedek. But Jesus' priesthood is superior to His because Jesus is the Son who died for our sins, who resurrected from the dead, who ascended into heaven in exalted form and who sits right now at God's right hand, highly exalted, interceding for us as the perfect and superior high priest, as the Son who fulfills everything to which the Old Covenant pointed. The author mixes metaphors in chapters 7 through 10. He identifies Jesus as both the priest and the sacrifice, which is a a powerful way of describing Jesus' death and resurrection. And he does this to emphasize to his audience that they must not turn away from Christ and return to the Mosaic Covenant 
Because the Mosaic Covenant pointed to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. He does not want these Jewish Christians to walk away from Jesus and become apostates. He doesn't want them to fall away because Jesus dealt with our sin problem on the cross. I want you to feel that this morning. And I hope you've noticed that constant theme in the singing this morning. The blood will never lose its power. What has washed away our sins? The author is laying bare before you this morning that the only sufficient payment for our sins is not your own righteousness. It's the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. It's not by you bootstrapping it up to heaven. It's by the sacrificial death of the Son. Last week, Pastor Jamal preached verses 1 through 14 in chapter 9, and he taught us the author contrasts the superior salvation that Jesus accomplished for us by his blood with the temporary sacrificial system that pointed to Christ and that did not provide forgiveness of sins. He reminded us that the author compels the audience to keep trusting in Christ. If you haven't listened to that sermon yet, or even if you did listen to it, listen to it again, the one Pastor Jamal preached last week, because he walked through those first 14 verses with great care and detail. And I'm going to assume this morning knowledge of those verses, because the author assumes in our text knowledge of those verses. But to remind you of a few things that he said, chapter 9, verse 11, for example, he says, Christ appeared as a high priest of good things as a greater and perfect high priest, entering a greater and more perfect tent. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and bulls and animals, but by means of his own blood to secure eternal salvation. Verse 13, if then the blood of goats and bulls purified or sanctified in the Mosaic covenant, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ sanctify? Because the blood of Christ, we learned last week, redeems us holistically. Amen? Accomplishes atonement for our sin. I have one point this morning I want to think about from this text. Jesus is the mediator of a new and superior covenant. Because he died on the cross for our sins as our substitute as our sacrifice of atonement, because God raised him from the dead, and because he ascended to heaven to the Father to present to him his atonement, his purification for our sins. And he sits at the Father's right hand because the work is complete, and he reigns right now over all things and forevermore. So if you notice in verse 15... The author begins the verse with the word therefore. Maybe you've heard this before. I want to I remind you if you have, when you see the word therefore in the text, ask yourself, why is it therefore? Unless you teach English grammar, right? It's therefore, the therefore, because the author's making a connection with what he just said. Now, I've already said it, but I'll say it again. Repetition is important because... 
The author and I want you to remember what he's just said. Jesus has atoned as the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest for our sin. Therefore, verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now that word mediator there is an important term. It means that Jesus was the agent through whom sinners have a relationship with God. In a moment in chapter in a moment in these verses, he will, the author, speak about Exodus chapter 24 and Leviticus chapter 16. He will merge together two different texts from the Old Testament. And in each of those two texts, Exodus 24 and Leviticus 16, there are two different mediators. In Exodus 24, the mediator is Moses who goes up on Mount Sinai. He gets a word from God and he represents the people of God. And he goes down and he gives the word of God to the people of God as their mediator. In chapter 16, the mediator is the high priest who takes the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people, representing God for the people and representing the people before God. He does that as their mediator. But the author is saying there's a superior mediator, brothers and sisters. A new mediator, a perfect mediator, and that's Jesus. He's a mediator, verse 15, of a, of a new covenant. The old covenant is the Mosaic covenant. Covenant. We'll say more about that in a moment. It's the covenant that is, that is outlined from Exodus chapter 20 throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, of course, repeats that Mosaic covenant before Moses dies. And the Mosaic covenant marked the people of God off as the people of God. As God graciously delivered them out of slavery, he then gave them a law by which to identify with him and to distinguish them from the other nations. That covenant is an old covenant because the new has come. Are you with me? That old covenant pointed to is fulfilled in and realized in Christ. That's the whole point of the first 14 verses talking about these copies and these symbols and these images in the Mosaic covenant. So Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And by new, oh yes, he does mean a better covenant. A superior covenant, not because the old was evil or legalistic, but because the old was not the end. It was a means to an end, and it was an interim period of time until Christ would come, we know from Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament. So he's highlighting Jesus here as the mediator of this new covenant. Question for you, you looking at the text? Why? Why is he the mediator of a new covenant? Look at verse 15. He gives us a purpose for why. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that, here it is, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now stop. Let's think about that for a moment. Are y'all with me? Are you with me? The reason Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant is because he came... Verse 15, in order to give eternal inheritance to those who were called so that he would redeem them, verse 15. Those who were called, verse 15, is a, 
is a word, the called, refers to those who are converted. It's an effectual calling. In other words, the calling, think of it this way, the calling is conversion. It's not this generic external call that can be rejected. It is this supernatural call whereby God works in the hearts of his people by his spirit, and he awakens their heart, Ezekiel 36 and 37, for example. He puts spiritual life on those dry bones. Everybody who is a believer, you have received that call. And the reason why I think I am right is because he says those who are the called are those who are redeemed and receive the eternal inheritance. Verse 15, do you see it? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions. Eternal redemption or eternal inheritance refers to salvation. Jesus was not playing games, in other words, when he came to this world. He came on a mission to redeem us from Adam's curse. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, don't you dare see a helpless victim there, although that was the greatest injustice in history. But there's a victor there. And we know there's a victor there because on Sunday morning he resurrected because the work was finished. So Jesus is a mediator of a, of a new covenant so that he would redeem those who are called, that he would redeem those who need to be redeemed from sin. That's all of us who believe. But notice the next part, verse 15. He gives you a reason. He's going to start talking about death. Since death, verse 15, has occurred... That redeems, that word redeem does carry with it this idea of liberation from slavery. There is some level here where Jesus is not only presented as the new and, and superior high priest, but he's also the new and better Exodus. Remember that story in Exodus when Israel was delivered from slavery and they praised God in Exodus 15 for delivering them, for redeeming them. There's a better Exodus that has come. Jesus Christ has redeemed sinners, paralyzed and dead in trespasses and sins. And he redeems them by his death, right? Verse 15. And notice at verse 15, he redeems them by his death, a death that happened to redeem them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, let me ask you this question. It is rhetorical. Did God ultimately deal with the sin problem? And the answer is no. Because he gave them sacrifices of atonement to offer, and then he gave them Yom Kippur, which they had to do every year. And every single year, they were reminded that they were sinners. And the author will go on in a moment and say that Jesus is not like that. He's not like that high priest who offers this sacrifice of atonement every single year, but he offered himself once and for all. So here's a very important point here. The sins committed under the old covenant, they impact us today. In other words, the Mosaic covenant was never given to those saints in the Mosaic covenant to be a means by which their sins were forgiven. That's the point. But Jesus was. 
So the Mosaic Covenant can't help us. Do you see the argument here? So I need you to give me a little help. Do you see the argument here? These Jewish Christians are thinking about walking away from Jesus who fulfills the covenant. But the author says that covenant didn't deal with sins. But Jesus does. So a death has occurred that redeems them, that is those who were called, from transgression committed under the Mosaic Covenant. Now in verses 16 and, and 17, he's going to now talk about an illustration to help highlight the point he's making. I'm reading from the ESV, and in the ESV, verse 16, you'll notice the word wheel in verse 16 and the word wheel in verse 17, as opposed to covenant. The word will here is the same word for covenant back up in verse 15 and the same word for covenant that we'll see used in verses 18 and following. What's happening here is not very clear, but let me just basically stick to the point. He's using an analogy to make this point. The point being with the covenant or with the will, generally speaking, there was death. And just as there was death under the Mosaic covenant, or if you want to take the the word to mean will, just as there was a death for a will to be executed, so also there must be a death for the sins of those who are sinful. And so he then therefore says in verse 18, verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, the first covenant is the Mosaic covenant. This is where he's going to begin talking about Exodus 24. Can we continue talking about the Bible this morning, folks? So we'll continue talking about Exodus 24. And Exodus 24 is what happened. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. God gives him the law. He goes down. I'm paraphrasing the passage, of course. And he tells the people, here's what God says. And the people say, amen, brother Moses. We'll do everything the Lord says we need to do. So then in order to ratify that covenant, Moses shed some blood, killed some animals, sprinkled some of the blood on the book of the covenant, he sprinkled some blood on the people, and he sprinkled some blood on the objects of the tent of meeting in order to symbolize that God has entered into a covenant with his people with blood and in order to obligate his people to God. Now we know, of course, historically, they did not uphold their end of the deal. But the reality of the covenant is not rooted in their disobedience or obedience. It's rooted in God's promise to do something for his people. And Moses' point in Exodus 24 is, is that God has acted. The author of Hebrews is saying, That event in history is pointing us to the moment when the high priest, Jesus, would come and bleed once and for all to fulfill the stipulations of the covenant and to deal with the sins of the people. Are y'all still with me? So here it comes in verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, again, this is Exodus 24, to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, verse 21, he sprinkled with with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. 
Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The point here is not that the shedding of blood in the Mosaic Covenant dealt with sin. The point is the covenant needed blood to demonstrate that, that there was a covenant. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And now the author is going to apply this to Jesus in verses 23 and following. He's moving from lesser to greater. I don't know about you. When I read Hebrews, I'm convicted about how little I know about the Old Testament. I mean, he is beautifully weaving together this Christological reading of the Old Testament. And to see it, we've got to understand the Old Testament, right? So here he goes, verse 23 down to verse 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, this is what Pastor Jamal talked about last week, be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now notice verse 24. He's going to turn it to Christ. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. But Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our, on our behalf. Don't just gloss over that. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and now he is exalted at God's right hand. He is sitting at the Lord's right hand, Psalm 110, until the Lord makes his enemies a footstool under his feet. He is highly exalted for everybody in heaven and on the earth to see that he has perfectly atoned for our sin once and for all. No more sacrifices this morning, folks. No lambs are slain this morning here because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice and his resurrection from the dead. Notice further, he says, verse 25. Now he's going to start meditating on Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, that's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the priests would take sacrifices for the people, would offer an atonement for sin, for his own sins, for the sins of the people, for the, for the way in which the sins of the people contaminate the land and defile the holy place. And he did that not once, but he did that every single year on top of the additional animal sacrifices that were offered throughout the year. But that's not Christ. The author of Hebrews says, verse 26, or rather verse 25, nor was it to offer himself, this is Jesus, to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with his own blood. For then, verse 26, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. He says a lot of onces for all throughout this passage. Jesus did not offer himself as a sacrifice twice. He offered himself on Calvary's heel once. It is finished. That's why he cries out, it is finished. There is no other means of atonement. That is it, brothers and sisters, and praise God it is. Amen? He has appeared once for all. 
at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The end of the ages began when Jesus was born. We've been living in the, at the end, the, in the end of the ages since Jesus came into this world. And we will continue to live in the end of the ages until he returns. The author's point here is, is that when Jesus entered into this world, the salvation historical clock changed. The end of the ages began. And when he came, he came. I love the way he says it. He came to put away sin. You see that there in the text? To put away sin. What does that mean? This is what this means. Your sin, Jesus, absorbed for you on the cross when he took upon himself God's wrath. While he was not a sinner, he became like one in that he received on our behalf in his body what we deserved. He lived a perfect life, did not ever sin against God, never desired to sin, never sinned, and he yet on the cross put away your sin because God treated him as unrighteous and he treats us as righteous in Christ by faith. He got wrath, shame, judgment, humiliation, we get righteousness in Christ by faith, and we have our sins forgiven. That's what it means to put away our sin, folks. You feeling weighed down this morning by the burden of sin? Well, if you are a Christian, Christ put your sin away. So we've been living, or verse 27, excuse me, and just as... It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And here he goes again. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Jesus came the first time, he came to deal with our sin problem. When he comes a second time, he's coming to deliver us from his future wrath. That's what salvation in part is. There's a day of wrath reserved at the end of history. And when Jesus returns, the dead will be raised, the books will be opened, the scales will be weighed. And those of us who are called, that is, those of us who are converted, those of us who are trusting in Christ, those of us who have our sins washed in the blood of the Lamb, He's coming to save us because we are the ones who are patiently waiting for Him. Brothers and sisters, Christ has atoned for our sins once and for all. By his substitutionary death for our sins. Three applications. One, Jesus fulfills the Old Covenant. But read the Old Testament as Christian Scripture. I became a Christian in 1996. I wasn't raised in church. But two years after I became a Christian, I found myself pursuing biblical and theological education. A few years later, I was in seminary pursuing more biblical and theological education. A question that I constantly asked myself was, 
how does the Old Testament apply to Christians? And how do the commandments of God in the Old Testament apply to Christians? Since Jesus fulfills the Old Covenant. The students in S2 are studying the Ten Commandments. And perhaps they, as I and as you, may also have some same or similar questions. It's important for us to remember that the Ten Commandments and the entire Mosaic Covenant were not evil. I want to say that again. The Old Testament is not evil. God's commands are not evil. One of the sad myths handed down from generation to generation is the myth that the Old Testament and the Mosaic Covenant were bad. But the New Covenant is good. The Old Covenant was legalistic and the New Covenant is gracious. Brothers and sisters, that is wrong and borderline anti-Semitic. The Old Covenant was a gracious covenant. God graciously chose Israel because he loved them as a people. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Why does God elect Israel to be Israel? He says, because he wanted to. And because he loved them. And then after he delivered them out of Egyptian slavery, he gives them a law. Grace comes first. Deliverance, well, election. (laughs) And then deliverance from slavery. And then they get Torah. They don't get Torah so they can bootstrap it out of Egypt, right? They don't get the Old Testament to bootstrap it up into heaven. They receive the Mosaic Covenant as a mark to mark them off, to separate them, to distinguish them from the other nations, and to mark them off as this unique people whom God chose and delivered out of Egypt. However, the law was a temporary guardian that marked off the people of God as the people of God in the Old Testament. So that they would live distinctly from the other nations until Christ would come. So that we would be justified by faith in Christ. Galatians chapter 3. The commandments of God were given to God's people not, never, pardon the double negative, to save them. The law gave them, God gave them the law to serve as a mark of who his people were. But here's the question. Do the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament apply to us? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, we must obey God's commands, but we are not required to live in accordance with the Mosaic Covenant as a system that marks us off as God's people, as Christians. As Christians, we live in accordance with the Spirit and not in accordance with the flesh. As we're living in accordance with the Spirit who produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control against such things, there is no law. We, in essence, fulfill everything the law commands, right? If you reduce the law down to two commandments, it is love God first and love neighbor second. And Jesus says that very thing in the Gospels, and New Testament authors like the Apostle Paul say the same thing as well. We don't fulfill the law by perfectly keeping its commands as Christians, but by walking in step with the Spirit. 
So when we break one of God's commands, we do not offer sacrifices of atonement, but we confess our sins to God and we cling to Christ. You know what else we do? We present our own lives as living sacrifices, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, by obeying the gospel and the power of the Spirit. I want to linger here a while longer. But do the commandments apply to us today? Well, yes and no. In Christ, we are members of this new covenant. We don't, for example, keep the Sabbath, which, by the way, is not Sunday anyway. It's sundown Friday to sundown Saturday in the Jewish reckoning of things. Sunday is the Lord's Day. That's why we worship on the first day of the week, which is when Jesus resurrected from the dead. In Christ Jesus, we trust in Christ, who is our eternal Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4. We worship him with God's people on the Lord's Day, Sunday. And we practically make sure we keep a rhythm of physical rest at some point throughout the week, whether that's Friday, Saturday, or Wednesday. Practicing Sabbath rest physically is a good thing. But it is not a mark of the people of God. It's a mark of wisdom. (laughs) If you don't rest, you'll die. A further word here. In Christ Jesus, we at Midtown, we are an ethnically diverse group of people. We are the people of God in Christ. We are marked off now not by the Mosaic Covenant, but by Christ and the transformative power of the Spirit. The people of God are Jews and Gentiles in Christ, not because the Old Covenant was evil, but because it was never intended to save us. Yes, we read the Old Testament and God's commands on their own terms. But we also must read them as Christians who are looking intentionally at how the New Testament authors apply those Old Testament commands to us as believers. Does that make sense? So what is an interpretive guide? And people disagree about this. But what is an interpretive guide for you when you're reading the Old Testament? You know what it is? The New Testament. The Old Testament was their Bible, and they're reinterpreting the Old Testament in light of God's revelation of his son in Christ. Oh, they understand the historical context, but they're not walking around talking about offering sacrifices anymore. They're walking around talking about Jesus is better than that. So we take the text seriously, but we apply it in a new covenant way by the power of the Spirit. So we love God and we love our neighbors as ourselves, but we don't offer sacrifices of atonement because Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement. Here's another application related to this. I want to speak more specifically about the people of God. Jewish Christians can continue to live a Jewish way of life if they want to. But they cannot impose a Jewish way of life onto Gentiles in Christ. And if you're not a Jew today, you are a Gentile. Hope you understand that. When the Bible talks about Gentiles, it's talking about all non-Jews. Doesn't matter your skin color. You're a Gentile unless you're Jewish. And in Christ Jesus, Jews don't have to become Gentiles, but Jews cannot make Gentiles become Jews, right? Right? 
Likewise, Gentiles in Christ are transformed by the power of the Spirit, but we are still Gentiles. But we can't live as immoral, ungodly Gentiles anymore. We have to live more like Jews without becoming Jews because we follow Christ. But Gentiles cannot impose our Gentile identity on non-Jews. Because Jews and Gentiles in Christ, regardless of tongue and tribe and people and nation, we are all the people of God by faith in Christ, and we maintain clear ethnic distinctions in Christ. Let me say it to you this way. In Christ Jesus, the ethnic identities of Jews and Gentiles are transformed, but not erased or eradicated or obliterated. So in Christ Jesus, we see the beauty of diverse ethnicities that are transformed by the power of the Spirit. And I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. If you don't believe that's true, you don't understand redemptive kingdom diversity. It has always been God's vision to redeem Jews and Gentiles without making either group convert to Judaism or Gentile, I'll make up a word, ism. So anytime we read a commandment in the Old Testament, we should remember at least two things. Every single commandment and the entire Old Covenant system pointed to and were fulfilled by and are realized in Christ. Second, we should ask the Spirit to help us understand how we apply these Old Testament commands as those who have been transformed by the power of the Spirit to love God with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength in Christ. Second application. Confess your sins to Jesus, your great high priest. Who died for your sins. And if you are struggling with sin today, bring it to Jesus. He can forgive you. You can't forgive yourselves eternally. In other words, you can't atone for your sin. No amount of guilt will exonerate you in God's law court. No amount of guilt tripping will make you feel righteous. God in Christ makes you righteous because Jesus bled for your sin. So bring it, brothers and sisters, to Christ. Third, Jesus died to cleanse us from all guilt. So drop your guilt at the empty tomb today. Drop your shame at the empty tomb today. Christians who repent of our sins must see ourselves as righteous in Christ, as opposed to obsessing over our sins and wallowing all the time in self-pity because of our sins, to the point that we ignore the profound truth that Jesus cleansed us from all sins and has purified our consciences. Now let me clarify, because I recognize there might be some theological moles watching this sermon. I'm theologically reformed in my understanding of salvation. I believe in total depravity, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 320, that we are all conceived in sin. We don't become sinners. We are conceived as sinners, and we live what we are when we're born. 
We are sinners because we are Adam's children. And Adam's curse contaminated, devastated the entire creation. And we are also sinners because we willingly participate in a sinful way of being because our nature is a sin nature in Adam. Are you with me? I believe that to my bones. But I also believe in unconditional election. That God chose some in Christ before the foundation of the world to be saved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I also believe that Jesus died for the elect. He died for those whom God chose. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. And I also believe in irresistible grace that God, when He effectually calls a dead, rotten spiritual corpse by the power of His Spirit, when He does Ezekiel 36 and 37 to them, like Lazarus, they wake up. And they want Jesus. He regenerates their heart and gives them faith to repent and believe. I also believe in the perseverance of the saints. That God will keep every person who belongs to Him. And yet, it is striking to me that those of us who are theologically reformed Christians, and if you don't know what that is, let's talk more after the service. We often spend a lot of time obsessing over our sin and depravity, but very little time reflecting on our new identity in Christ. And God's saving mercy given to us to make us righteous in Christ as we live in the world. Do y'all hear me this morning? Let me lean more here. Because I'm not preaching again for a while. (laughs) Paul says to the Corinthians, some of you were homosexuals. You were adulterers. You were immoral. But in Christ Jesus, he calls them saints. Because they were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified. And they were redeemed. Reflecting upon our sin regularly is important. But only affirming how rotten to the core we are and how sinful we are is neither the gospel nor is it helpful. Of course, an appropriate level of introspection is helpful. I'm one of the most introspective people you'll ever meet. There have been times I've thought about resigning from being an elder because I drive 56 and a 55. So just know who's talking to you about this stuff this morning, all right? A certain level of healthy introspection is good. Examine yourselves, for example, to see if whether you are in the faith, right? 2 Corinthians 13. You should do that, especially if you're living in disobedience to Jesus. You should examine your faith. You should make your calling and election sure. But spiritual navel-gazing will lead us to despair if we fail to look to Christ. Perhaps one reason, one reason, I know this is complex, all right? One reason, some of us deal with low self-esteem is because we are self-centered, constantly looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to others 
the families of others, the marital status of others, the kids of others, the vocations of others, as opposed to looking to Christ and finding our identity in Him and being content in our righteous status in Christ. Sadly, I think we as Christians are at times some of the most insecure people on the planet. If our eyes are rightly fixed on Christ, and if we are seeking to find our identity in Him as we pursue together a life of personal and corporate holiness, then we should be humble and confident. There is no contradiction there either. Humble and confident in Christ. False humility, that is actually sin, not confident humility. We should be secure and content in the world. Again, I know this is complex, but I'm a pastor. I'm not a clinician or a social scientist. It's my job to exposit the text, right? It's the job of others to help you in other areas where there might need to be some help. But that's not my lane. This is my lane, and I'm staying there, okay? my job to point you to Jesus. But this is a battle, isn't it? I battle with this. I struggle with the imposter syndrome, don't you? Where you think everybody is great but you. Right? Everybody is just knocking it out of the park but you. Well, we all feel that. But we should remember that God is not impressed with us. He is not impressed with our gifts or accomplishments. In fact, it's because of him we we have all good things. So we must keep our eyes and hearts fixed on Christ in times of joy and in times of sorrow. In times of the harvest and in times of drought. As the old song says, quote, when Satan tempts us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within Upward we look and we see Jesus there who made an end to all of our sin. Amen? If we only look to our sin and never to Christ, we may fall away from Jesus. Or we will be be spiritually discouraged often. The gospel is, once we were lost, but now we are found. The gospel is not, we're all hopeless sinners and God hates us. The end. Yes, it's true. God does possess a perfectly divine hatred toward all who do iniquity. Psalm 5.5. And yes, it's also true that outside of Christ, in Adam, we are godless, Christ-rejecting, hell-bound sinners. But that's not the good news, is it? Actually, that's actually bad news. (laughs) The gospel is we're hopeless sinners apart from Christ. But there is hope for all of us in Christ. Because if Jesus has shed blood for our sins and his resurrection, exaltation, and ascension, the author of Hebrews says that we can pursue and experience personal and corporate holiness as the people of God. And that we must therefore pursue it as the people of God. Because Jesus died for our sins to make us his people by faith. 
Thus, if you have a weak conscience today, and if you are obsessed with your personal sin as a Christian to the point that it leads you to despair and constant anxiety, one thing, I want to repeat that again, one thing, not the only thing, one thing you need to do is to turn away from your sin and to direct your attention to Christ. Turn the attention away from how worthless you are and focus on how righteous you are in Christ. As one theologian said, we're both the saved and the sinner at the same time, right? Okay, I've lost you. I'm going to wrap this up. When I don't get call and response for the 11, it's time to land the plane, all right? The solution to your struggle with your battle with sin is not try harder to be a good person. That will lead you to despair. The solution is is to fix your eyes on Christ and ask Him to give you the supernatural cleansing power of the Spirit to help you walk in step with the Spirit. This is one way that you fight against spiritual lethargy and sin, and against the devil, and actually win. Otherwise, you will be spiritually paralyzed by legalism. Legalism will not give you life. It will kill you. Antinomianism, which is the opposite of legalism, which basically says you can do whatever you want, that will not give you life. That will kill you. But the Spirit gives life. Jesus' cleansing power gives life. Life. For some of you, you battle with legalism. For others of you, you battle with antinomianism. The gospel is neither. It's neither try harder to get yourself right, nor is it you can do whatever you want. It is not work really hard to be righteous before God and Christ, nor is it because God loves you, you can live any way you want to live, just the way you are. Both statements are distortions of the gospel. So therefore, brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Rest in Him. Repent and follow Jesus every day. And hear this, go and sin no more. But when you do, (laughs) confess your sins. Because he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And if you say you have no sins, 1 John 1, 8, you are a liar and the gospel does not abide in you. So I begin how I ended, or I end how I began. <laughs> it's definitely time to wrap this up. Brothers and sisters, what can wash our sins away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me reread that. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. 
No other fount we know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.